Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extraction Podcast. Today I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Zainab Usman. Zainab is a Nigerian uh, thought leader. She's a senior fellow and director of the African program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C. in the United States. Zainab's field of expertise includes institutions, economic policy, energy policy, and emerging economies in Africa. Zainab, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extracted Podcast. I know you have a busy schedule and I appreciate you making the time. Thank you very much, Sheila. It's such a pleasure to reconnect with you and to be hosted on your amazing podcast. That's fantastic. So I thought that I would get your perspective on a couple of things, starting with your thoughts on the recent oil price surge and what that tells us about the medium term future prospect, despite the drive uh, to decarbonize world economies through reduction of fossil fuels? Very pertinent question, Sheila. Let us begin with the oil price surge itself. Earlier this year, we saw oil prices, um, if we take Brent crude, for example, as a benchmark, rise to unprecedented levels of around $120 per barrel um, between February, March, and even April. Um, and this was really driven by a number of factors, including the war in Ukraine, but also surging demand as a result of reopening of um, various economies around the world uh, after the uh, strict lockdowns that we saw in 2020 and 2021. So all these factors and more drove uh, the prices of oil to increase. Um, for a number of uh, oil-rich countries around the world, including in Africa, our common continent, um, this provided significant windfalls for them, as usual, and we've seen these cycles of oil price increases in the past couple of decades. But this time around, the context was and still is slightly different in the sense that we had just come out of a COP 26 last year in Glasgow, this is the UN summit on climate change, in which there was really an acceleration of interest uh, and emphasis on moving to a low carbon future to address the challenge of climate change. So the idea was that, um, you know, at the time, oil prices were much lower. And in fact, in 20, in, in, in 2020, um, uh, oil oil futures reached an unprecedented negative values actually for the first time in a very long time. So the idea was that uh, at the time that this kind of oil boom and um, a rapid rise in oil prices that that was a phenomenon that was kind of behind us. Um, but what happened earlier this year? until date, because oil prices are still north of $90 per barrel, reminds us of the fact that um, this emphasis towards decarbonization is actually not going to be linear. Um, our movement towards a low carbon future in which our economies 
the systems and activities that support economic activity from agriculture to construction to manufacturing to transport and mobility that transition to make these systems and activities less carbon intensive is not going to be linear we're not just moving forward in one direction that transition is going to happen in fits and starts and that in fact that the technologies and all of the systems that we need to be fully carbon neutral or to be to be more, more low carbon, we're not quite there yet, right? So I think that's kind of where we're at with respect to the oil price surge and the, 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 the hard reality that we have to confront with respect to this low carbon transition. Hmm. This is very interesting, uh, your assertion that transition is not going to be linear, because of course, for the average person, when we hear our principles come out of COP and say, we must uh, decarbonize by X uh, period, or that we must reduce uh, the carbon emissions such that we achieve this 1.5 degree level, the assumption is that, you know, the train is leaving the station from that moment on, it's all systems go. So if we know that actually it's going to be a stop start, two steps forward, one step uh, backward, what does it, I mean, how should major fossil fuel producers interpret that in terms of either the pace of production or for that matter, dependency on fossil fuels so that I couldn't, what does that translate to that knowledge that the process is not linear? I think what is going on is that um, we are indeed seeing the disastrous impacts of climate change, in particular, the um, disasters that are happening the one that happened recently with the floods in Pakistan that displaced over 33 million people. Uh, there was also flooding recently in Sudan that didn't quite make the headlines. Across the board, you have that happening. Uh, for countries closer to the equator, the temperatures now are really, really hot, especially within the summer months. So we're, we're, we're really feeling the impact of a warming climate. And indeed, that propels various countries, various activists, various scholars, various policymakers to want to see um, more headway being made with respect to global climate action. That is absolutely justified and that makes sense. And indeed, the, um, the goal of moving to a low carbon future to li limit in, in order to limit global warming to you know, realistically two degrees Celsius, because the consensus is that the 1.5 degrees target is most likely not going to be met. So even that two degrees Celsius, all of that is good. It's, you know, the entire world, we need to wake up to this reality. Now there's a world of difference between this imperative, what needs to be done and how to achieve it. What are the practical steps that can be taken and should be taken? Um, and I think that is where I see the biggest disconnect, I would say, 
between what needs to happen and what should happen and what are the actual steps to be taken. Um, so it is unfortunate that the discourse now has become really, really polarized. And you do have activists and environmentalists who are really passionate and would like to see change happen today. And then you have um, various countries, various regions of the world, which require financing, they require support, they require systems and structures to be put in place that are not going to happen within a day. Um, and I think, you know, that is really the serious gap here, meaning that for a lot of countries around the world, and for African countries in particular, it's something that they are indeed grappling with. So I, I, don't, I don't think I answered your question directly, but I thought it would be important to paint this kind of broad canvas as to where some of the challenges lie, that there is really this disconnect that we are seeing between people, people and advocates who are really passionate and would like to see this change happen today, and that the capabilities of countries, of policymakers, of regions is not quite there yet. And maybe that's really what we need to focus on. How do we bridge that gap? Hmm. Yeah, it makes sense, actually, because what you're quite rightly recognizing is that through activism, through scientific data, and for that matter, through the impacts that we are seeing every day, there is a sense of agency. But that while it's important to recognize that sense of agency, there are also other realities. And that if we don't balance our recognition scientifically uh, and environmental of this sense of agency with what is practically feasible, given where we are and our dependency on fossil fuels, then we are going to have this stop start because occasionally reality will, will uh, dawn upon us. But uh, speaking of imperatives, I'm reminded of the reality of the impacts of COVID. Many uh, petroleum producers in Africa, particularly, have high national debt. So in view of uh, the impacts of COVID, where countries were not able to generate revenue, but had to spend a lot in containing the risk of the pandemic, how must they now reconcile the quest for the 1.5 degree or two uh, degree reduction in global warming with the need for them to capitalize on the price of uh, crude oil in order to uh, reduce or eliminate national debt. You put your finger on a pulse or the pulse, I would say. The question of um, public debt in African countries comes up in this discussion on decarbonization because of the central role of finance for these countries to be able to um, be better prepared with respect to climate change. Um, as you rightly mentioned, the COVID-19 pandemic, what it did was that it didn't have as much public health impact in Africa as you, you find in other parts of the world, whether is India and parts of South Asia or the US or Europe, etc. But what it did is that it um, put a burden on public financing because a lot of um, public revenues 
ended up being diverted to um, public health initiatives to really trying to um, contain the pandemic itself. Um, and uh, of, of course, the disruption of trade and economic activity limited the uh, tax revenues and other uh, earnings uh, of governments across um, African countries, right? So basically COVID uh, created fiscal pressures. Now, this is important with respect to decarbonization and climate change in Africa, because what it does is it just creates more fiscal stress for countries that already have um, huge financial needs. With respect to preparing African countries to better adapt to the impacts of climate change, one estimate by the United Nations Environment Programme puts the financial needs for African countries at $50 billion per annum. So they need investments of around $50 billion per annum for the next decade or so to be able to better um, prepare or build resilience to the droughts that are happening, to the floods that are happening, to rising temperatures, to do things like climate smart agriculture, to have to, to, have, to be able to um, uh, farm uh, crops that are resistant to extreme temperatures and things like that. But the interesting thing here is that this $50 billion that is needed or that are needed are in addition to the uh, at least $100 billion needed every year to invest in infrastructure in Africa. Right. So at, at the very least, African countries need $150 billion per annum. But this financing is not forthcoming, as we know. Um, when it comes to climate change and climate finance, we know that um, the $100 billion promised by wealthy countries at Copenhagen in uh, 2009 has not, has not been forthcoming. And that pledge is going to expire in 2025, I think. So in less than uh, three years. And we know that um, just generally African countries find it very difficult to access concessional financing, whether from the multilateral development banks uh, or even from bilateral predators. And it's part of the reason why a lot of them in the past decade or decade and a half turned to uh, Eurobond markets to be able to access financing for their infrastructure and public service needs. Um, you look at also other kinds of uh, uh, investments and project financing. One study done by the um, IRENA, International Renewable Energy Agency, uh, finds that African, Africa as a region receives the lowest share of renewable energy investment. Right. So across the board, I mentioned all of these different um, sources and types of financing to explain the fact that the needs are huge for African countries, but there's a huge gap also. The financing is not, is not forthcoming, which then circles back to the last part of your question, especially for commodity producers, that perhaps this is the window of opportunity for them now that oil and gas prices are high, and there might just be a new commodity rush for critical minerals for them to be able to use those revenues and rents 
towards these purposes. But to do that, they also need to, the African countries themselves, there are certain things they need to do better and they need to do differently around public financial management. But that is the window. This is the window. This is potentially an opportunity to be able to think differently about how to use these commodity revenues and rents towards infrastructure, towards climate adaptation, because the window is not going to be open for a long time. Hmm. So uh, you've said a, a mouthful. First, you've spoken about opportunities. Uh, and then you've spoken about uh, DFIs and the lack of uh, finance. Uh, and, and then, of course, uh, the COPs. I, I want to follow through on all those three, but let me start first with uh, any potential opportunities. I mean, as the world uh, shifts uh, in terms of its approach to uh, extraction of fossil fuels, it, do you see an opportunity at all for regional governments to rethink the structure of the petroleum sector as part of the transition to clean energy? Because so far, to your point, we have been very focused on export of commodities. We have been focused also, on the other hand, on our state-owned entities. Is there an opportunity to rethink the structure of the industry such that we are better positioned to leverage uh, the current circumstances? Very, very pertinent question, Sheila. In fact, um, there needs to be a complete reorientation of how resource-rich African countries think about the resource sector, whether oil and gas or critical minerals or mining and metals more broadly. As you rightly mentioned, for a long time, uh, I mean, since the colonial period, the independence period, and till date, for many countries, the model has been an, a very extractive export-oriented one, where you dig up or drill the commodity, whatever it is, coal, oil, gas, uh, cobalt, nickel, copper, gold, you name it, and then you sell it in international markets. Uh, for revenues that you tax and then you use for whatever purpose. That has to change. Uh, this is not even a new discussion. It's been going on for decades. But the difference now is that there is a new imperative because the window uh, is, is closing very quickly. In the next two decades, it's going to look very, very different. I think the world will still use oil and gas, maybe less so cool. The world will still use oil and gas for all sorts of purposes. There are different use cases for these commodities. Uh, they're not just used, they're not just burned to generate energy for transportation or for, the, for electric power, but you get petrochemicals out of them. You get fertilizers, you get... Uh, uh, petroleum jelly that people use uh, as a as a, as body lotion. You get uh, plastics, the good plastics, the bad plastics. You get all of those, right? There's so many things you get that are so essential to our everyday modern life that oil and gas will continue to be in use for the next couple of decades. But the uses will change, and for that reason, African countries too need to think rethink this extractive export-oriented model. And what we're experiencing right now, the global shocks with respect to uh, things like the war in Ukraine, 
change in geopolitics, the US-China trade competition and trade conflicts, um, uh, and, and a whole range of things like that are resulting rising prices uh, of those commodities, but also their byproducts, refined fuels. In the past couple of months, we've seen riots in Accra, in uh, you know protests and discontent in Kenya, in Nigeria, because of the lack of availability of refined fuels that are used, and also fertilizer shortages. We've seen that across African countries. But again, I'm going to emphasize that this window of opportunity is going to close. It's not going to remain open forever or for a long time. You have at least another decade to try to do things right and to try to do things differently. Yeah, they, they, that uh, remind that to us that uh, the, these market dynamics are not permanent and that they are driven by certain uh, geopolitical industrial, but also policy uh, imperative at a given time is so important because the assumption that we'll always have this opportunity uh, essentially belies reality. And, and it also suggests that governments must not only move in the right direction, but they also must move at the right pace. Uh, otherwise, the risk is that there is suboptimal outcomes. Now, I'm reminded that uh, since the start of this year, the global discourse on decarbonization and reduction of fossil fuel emissions has toned down, especially in the European economic bloc, as that uh, region reckoned with the, its own uh, energy insecurity. But, but this slowing down, this rethinking of either the pace of things or the direction Back to the question, what uh, really sh uh, should be done to stabilize um, the decarbonization agenda such that the corps do not lose credibility based on the appearance that we are half-hearted in our commitment to the resolutions coming out of COP26? There are two aspects of your question that I'm going to pick on. One is energy security, and then the second is the relevance of COPs. Starting with energy security, um, what has happened this year with the war in Ukraine and uh, the kinds of uh, um, expedient policy policies and decisions we've seen from uh, European countries is a good reminder that energy security absolutely is so crucial that in our um, transition to a low carbon future, in our prioritization of decarbonization, in our efforts at coming up with effective and feasible climate policies, we have to put energy security um, into consideration. Um, and this matters for, as we can see with the European Union, the EU countries, which have been going around African countries. We saw the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz in uh, Senegal uh, trying to uh, um, 
uh, procure gas, natural gas for German use. Uh, in Algeria, we've seen European countries negotiating with Algeria to uh, secure gas again for the use in Europe. Uh, we've seen Germany importing coal from South Africa, even though uh, there was this um, announcement that was made at COP27 in terms of moving completely away from the use of coal. And across the board, I can keep listing countries, Angola, Nigeria, the Italians, going to Nigeria to try to secure gas as well. Um, so we, we see that uh, this statement of principles and values around um, uh, transitioning to a low carbon future, around completely moving away from the consumption of and use of fossil fuels uh, in Europe, that these values can indeed be bent for the purposes of European energy security. Uh, in the US as well, energy security is a huge um, uh, aspect of uh, climate, uh, uh, climate policy, uh, at least in parts of the US government. Um, you know, in Asia, in China, in Japan, etc. Africa too, and African countries, their own energy security matters. So all this to say that energy security has to be taken into account for every region of the world, um, uh, as we've seen with uh, what's going on in Europe. Then the second aspect of your question that I want to address is around the relevance of the Conference of Parties and the UN Climate Summit. Um, for many developing countries, countries in the global south, uh, especially those in Africa, COPs, they're, they're typically not happy with the outcomes of COPs. Um, for even some of the small island nations uh, in the Caribbean, in the Pacific, I mean, they are usually very, very vocal, very, um, uh, their impatience with the pace of progress is very, it's typically very vocalized. Uh, they do not mince words, whether you've heard of uh, um, Mia Mortley in uh, Barbados uh, or, you know, representatives of the Maldives and all of these island nations, they're very clear that, look, inaction is costing them. Because for them, there are, there are some of these islands that are sinking rapidly or they're being enveloped by the ocean. Some of them will actually cease to exist in the next five, six decades. Um, but I'm, I'm picking on all of these different elements to try to make a broader point that as much as there's a lot of frustration with these UN climate summits, they still remain a very important multilateral forum for different countries to come together. Now, coming together doesn't necessarily mean that there's gonna be consensus or agreement, but at least we should have those fora where different countries come together. Um, having said that, with respect to African countries in particular, and here I'm going to be hard on some African countries or many African countries, actually, that they go to these summits unprepared, completely unprepared. These summits um, and the conference of parties in particular, 
you go there as a government to negotiate. Not all African countries are prepared or go there with the mindset of negotiation. And when you're negotiating these kinds of agreements and deals and um, multilateral instruments, you have to go with expert negotiators, which brings me to the capabilities and capacities in African bureaucracies, whether the ministries or the civil service or other entities of government to build to, or to have a team of negotiators. This is not often the case. And when you compare African, because I've been to uh, COP and you know, I've spoken to people, I've seen some of these negotiators, you know, sometimes they just drag someone from a ministry of foreign affairs or ministry of something, some bureaucrat who is not an expert in this area to go and negotiate, to be in, a, in, a, in, in these uh, negotiation settings with their counterparts from advanced economies who, who spend most of their time doing this thing, who are well-trained, right? So I think I'm gonna be very hard on African countries. Like they need to be more prepared for these things. They need to go there with the right manpower, with people who have the skills and building the skills is not rocket science. You can do it, but you just need to know what you're getting into. And to realize that these COPs and these summits they are not a place for you to go and get charity and aid. You're going there to negotiate things that are should be in the interest of your own country, put in the interests of your country or your region front and center, not to go there to ask for help or support or development assistance. And that is a mental shift that really needs to happen across many African countries. I agree so I'm with you. Stop there. <laughs> no, no, I, I agree with you. I think enlightened self-interest is called for. The, the cops is not uh, a club of like-minded, uh, nor a, a club of countries with the same problems, nor a club of countries at the same level of development. Therefore, you are quite right. It's a platform for reaching global consensus and then narrowing that down to negotiations and trade-offs, but in a way that speaks to national interest. Otherwise, uh, it is detrimental. Otherwise, it is just fundamentally unjustifiable for the citizens of, of countries that rely on uh, their political masters to champion their interests. Let me ask you one last question. I, and, and it's to do with uh, a combination of things. First, the moving corner post, but also the fact that historically, uh, development finance institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, and uh, for that matter, the African Development Bank have really galvanized uh, emerging market countries in the South, including in Africa, and rallied them uh, to support this ground soil of uh, containment of the adverse effects of uh, climate change. As uh, we see this moving forward and backwards that we've spoken about, you know, uh, how should these development agencies uh, act in a way that provides some kind of stability, despite the fact that, to your point, it's not a linear process, but also how should the Africans themselves engage in the DFIs to help make sure that this shifting dynamic 
does not have adverse effects on themselves. Whether multilateral or bilateral, they do play a very important role as policy banks. As policy banks that uh, provide financing, uh, mostly on a concessional basis uh, for long-term development projects, uh, as opposed to an investment bank or other types of uh, um, financial institutions. Um, I think what makes them interesting and what makes their mandate very um, oftentimes a bit uh, unclear is that um, their shareholders are also member states in a sense, meaning that their decision making is not always informed by profit motives. Well, I mean, already we're talking about entities that provide concessional financing, so the profit motive is not often the main or even the only consideration. Um, and then for DFIs in particular that are a bit more global in nature, uh, the moment you have member states from different parts of the world, then you're gonna have geopolitical considerations. And uh, we all know that the, um, that the voting shares of the shareholders are not equal, and that creates different kinds of inequalities and asymmetries meaning that, of course, those with the largest voting shares would have, uh, um, their, their, their interests would weigh more heavily in decision-making. Um, nevertheless, despite these uh, you know, inequalities, asymmetries, geopolitics, DFIs do have, a, do have and can play a very important role with respect to certain kinds of policy lending. Um, uh, with, with respect to climate change, uh, they, they can and should definitely do a lot more on that front, uh, given the kinds of challenges that we see around the world. Now, the problem is, from my perspective, um, a number of these DFIs have taken on more and more or have added more and more things into their priorities or into their mandate. Um, so a number of them, and I don't want to call any of them out here, but a number of them have moved beyond policy lending to do all sorts of things, right? Uh, moving beyond uh, whether providing uh, emergency assistance or budget support or those that do infrastructure, providing lending around um, uh, 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 lending around infrastructure or lending around project preparation for infrastructure projects and move beyond all of these to do almost everything. Uh, they're doing social development projects, which are good, very, very good, very needed. Um, they are doing um, a whole range of things. I probably don't want to go into too much detail here. So what is happening is that you find that, from my perspective, I think there's often a confusion in what DFIs should be doing, which is really around when it comes to infrastructure projects, when it comes to uh, whether it's renewable energy projects and other such things, they can do a lot more by supporting project preparation, providing project preparation financing. Uh, uh, providing financing for de-risking their investment environment 
um, in developing countries so that the private sector and private capital can flow into those uh, economies. But it's not always clear that this is what a lot of DFIs primarily focus on. Uh, so from my perspective, I would say that uh, there needs to be better clarity of their roles and their mandates. Now, how should African countries engage uh, with the DFIs in a more effective manner? I will say two things on that front. One is a better understanding of what African countries themselves want, what their priorities are, what their vision is, and being very clear and very persistent in sticking to those priorities that they have set. So that's the first thing that needs to happen. Then the second thing that needs to happen based on an, a clear articulation of their vision and their priorities is to really understand in a pragmatic manner where DFIs can come in and support the achievement of those objectives that a country has set itself. If a country has decided, look, we want to invest in broadband infrastructure, that is a key priority for us to get to, to get our people connected, to get our economies better prepared for digital future. Um, we want some kind of uh, 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 risking finance because we anticipate a wave of uh, um, uh, uh, mining investments coming in. Um, and uh, you know we want to build shared infrastructure around that. Things like that, they've made it very clear Then this is where the DFIs can come and help or can support. I guess the third, the third part, just very quickly to, to round up, is to say that there are now a lot of options for African countries when it comes to multilateral development banks, uh, uh, DFIs. Uh, there's the African Development Bank, there's the World Bank. The EBRD is now interested in doing uh, some projects in Africa. So African countries can also shop around. So that's probably the third point I wanted to conclude on. That's fantastic. Well, uh, it was uh, quite uh, interesting listening to your views and thoughts, which I found very refreshing. Thank you very much for indulging the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you so much, Sheila, for hosting me.